welcome to DevCast, brought to you by Devril Smith, the right people. DevCast is where property meets people, industry figures, news and views, what it takes to be your best. So sit back, earphones on, and enjoy this edition of DevCast. Devil Smith's audio series, which holds exclusive and thought-provoking interviews with property professionals across the industry. My name is Andrew Devil Smith. I'm CEO and founder of Devil Smith, and today I'm joined by Chief Operating Officer of Oxton's Patrick Franco and Don Scott, Managing Director of Alexander Hall. And we'll be addressing why diversity and inclusion matters. Both guests have experience as being part of a minority in both personal and professional life, which has led them to become experts when it comes to creating a more diverse and inclusive workforce. This interview should hopefully offer insight and advice for both business leaders and those looking to further their knowledge on the topic. Uh, Patrick, if I I can start with you, um, could you give our our listeners an overview of who you are and what you do within the organisation? Good morning. My name is Patrick Franco and I'm Chief Operating Officer at Foxton's. I joined the business just over five years ago from Credit Suisse. I'm originally from New York City, but I've lived in London for the past 15 years. I'm also a gay man and proud sponsor of the Foxton's LGBTQ plus network. We set up this network several years ago to attract and retain LGBTQ plus talent at Foxton's grow our base of allies within the business and demonstrate to our customers that we're open for business for everyone. Thank you. And Dom, if you don't mind, same same question. Sure. Good morning. So I joined the Foxton's business 17 years ago now. Prior to working at Foxton's, I used to work with children who couldn't fit into the mainstream school system. And since joining, I've worked my way through the Foxton's business up to operations director, then moved across to Alexander Hall as sales director in 2012. And then in 2015, I became the managing director. Um, two and a half years ago, I set up, along with um, another lady, the Afro Foxton's network. And that's proven to be a really good um, opportunity to develop leaders, develop people's career progression within the business and create a forum for people to share their stories and share their ideas. Fantastic. Um, so I'm going to ask you both the same question, um, if that's all right. And I'm very interested in, in, in your answers, of course. But what does, I, what does a diverse workforce mean for you, Don? Um, sure. Um, so I am a black man. And um, my blackness is not something I do, it's something I am. And to me, um, a diverse workforce is a workforce that accepts me for who I am and, and generally accepts other people for who they are, you know, whether it's based on gender or whether it's um, someone who identifies LGBTQ+, um, without any bias or any prejudice. I'm a firm believer that um, we live in a wonderful multicultural society um, with a mix of people that has a range of different influences. Um, I always joke that our royal family is German, um, our favourite dish is is Indian, our our, our favourite drink tea is is from China, our numeric system is Hindu-Arabic, our alphabet is is Egyptian by way of, of Rome. So it's quite odd then why we, we tend to have this singularity about our history, our story, and anyone who sits outside of that um, tends to, to um, be disturbing the norm. So for me, um, diversity is about readdressing that balance and, and addressing the fact that everyone has a role to play in, in this narrative. And I think companies then complement that effort to ensure they're supporting the message and, and supporting that inclusivity. Um, how does it affect companies specifically? I think for a business, it makes um, companies more robust in its thinking. Diversity for me isn't just 
um, playing a game of, of pick and mix. It's actually about diversity of thinking. So my wife um, has a great analogy where she says on a, on a place of food, you should have as many colours as possible because it represents um, a full range of, of nutrition. You know, you're you're going to have more nutrients in that dish. And it's the same for a company. If you've got a range of different people, I'm not just talking about different colours as in race, but a variety of influences, then that country, that company then will also um, not be malnourished and have you know, a diverse range of opinions and thoughts. Secondly, it's an opportunity to learn and grow. If everyone's the same, then there's no room for growth. And thirdly, I think it's just more enjoyable, where you have a range of influences, a range of people to to be friends with and engage with, it just makes it more interesting. I think a lot of people sometimes disconnect diversity and inclusion also from like best practice in terms of running a business. For Foxton's, uh, there's a whole uh, business case alone for having a really diverse workplace because we want to attract and retain the best uh, talent from all walks of life. Uh, estate agency is a people business, so if you're excluding large segments of the population, you're missing out on a gigantic talent pool, uh, which is not good for business anyway. And from a customer standpoint, 40% uh, of London is non-white. So the idea that you could have a business in London that doesn't reflect uh, the composition of London is, is totally nonsensical. So. It's really, I think, uh, in addition to what Dom is speaking about, and, and obviously the moral imperative to having a diverse and inclusive workplace, uh, good business sense anyway. Great points. Could you, could you talk to me about how, how much of a conscious effort is it at the, amongst the senior leadership team to attract that diverse talent into, into the business? How actively do you talk about it and think about it? All the time. So... For me, if you really um, want to create a fair environment, it's not something you do because it's fashionable. It's something that you, you truly believe in and it's part of your DNA. So then every thought thereafter, every action thereafter, um, I think then complements the effort to do so. It's very much in the culture of our business. And the way that I understand culture is it's a shared mindset. So the mindset determines the behavior. So where we've got the right mindset here, then I think we are also demonstrating all the right behaviors as a business. And for me, the first step um, for any business in, in moving the conversation forward and taking action is acknowledging where you stand um, as a business in regards to being better at diversity and inclusion. If you don't think you've got a problem, then why would you put any effort or energy into fixing something? And um, just because you acknowledge there's something to be fixed, it doesn't mean you have to chastise yourself and, and be really cynical about it, but recognizing the issue is the first step to fixing that issue. The second step for me is then um, committing yourself to doing something about it. And where a commitment is wishy-washy and it's non-specific, then there's a greater chance that it will be forgotten about and ultimately not achieved. So it's important that it, it's present at board level and then it permeates throughout the business and, and for me whenever I'm doing anything I always use the acronym of SMART it's got to be specific measurable achievable realistic and time sensitive I think you know it really applies here too and then there's a number of other um, things a company can do around setting up endorsed networks mentorship you know reviewing best practice in regards to um, recruitment and, and uh, progression within the business which I know Patrick's got a few thoughts on. One of the things that we've been doing at Foxton's, and, and we've been on a journey when it comes to diversity and inclusion, to Dom's point, is first measuring where we are, getting the baseline. And I don't think a lot enough businesses actually do this. And, and you can measure the baseline in a number of ways. Um, one, of the, one of the most effective ways we found was doing an employee engagement survey um, that had specific questions around diversity and inclusion um, and also uh, the opportunity for employees to uh, self-identify because it's, it's very difficult to 
um, classify your employees into categories. In fact, it, it's, it's illegal. So if you want to know what the composition of your workforce is, you're, you're much better off um, asking them first to self-identify. And that first gives you a baseline of the composition of your workforce. And then depending on how you design an employee engagement survey, you can also measure the relative levels of engagement, particularly um, within minority groups of that survey or in areas of the business where you're trying to level the playing field. Uh, and off the back of that employee engagement survey, when we first started this journey several years ago, we identified three pockets of the business that where we needed to improve. And that was generally around women at Foxton's, um, the Afro community at Foxton's, which subsequently became the Afro Foxton's network that Dom oversees in the LGBT um, segment of the business. Um, that subsequently became the LGBT uh, LGBTQ plus network, um, uh, which I started with some colleagues uh, a couple of years ago. And the beauty of getting that baseline is then it's very trackable. So you can start to, um, one, uh, measure performance every year against a set of programs. Um, and those sets of programs um, are, are, can be a range of things. Some of the things that Dom mentioned, like sponsorship, um, setting up networks, setting up uh, events where you can also encourage allies to the business, so people outside of those networks to get involved. And all of that program uh, is something that should really be measured by the board, and that's something that's done quite frequently here at Foxton's and by our CEO, Nick Button. Uh, so it's really um, a combination of getting the baseline uh, agreeing a set of programs and objectives that are regularly tracked and monitored by the board and then checking back with employees and we've used um, uh, uh, feedback sessions where we've had uh, even an external facilitator come in uh, and conduct focus groups to just sanity test that our programs are working, they're relevant um, and to give uh, an opportunity for employees to speak to a third party in case they're not comfortable speaking to uh, their manager, for example. Uh, and, that's, and that's something that's worked really well over the last few years and got us to a point um, where, as a business, we pretty much mirror the composition of London in terms of the, the kind of the white versus non-white mix that I mentioned earlier. Um, and we're, uh, we have double the amount of uh, LGBT employees than the average percentage in London, just over 5%, and we're 50-50 on the gender side. And could you talk me through some of the steps that have enabled you to, to, um, to achieve that shape and, and, and feel? You guys are, you know, Foxlands is such a you know, public company, huge amount of resource available to it. I think. Many of the listeners to this might be running smaller businesses or you know, management within smaller companies. What, what, um, what, what did you do to create that mix of an organisation? Got any, any tips for our listeners? Yeah, I think it starts at the top, which is not uh, profound as far as business savings go, but it really does here. I mean, if you've got people towards the bottom of an organisation, working against the grain of the culture within that business or the senior management team, it's always destined to fail. And I think we are incredibly fortunate within Foxton's to have Nick Budden running the business who has a very sincere passion for inclusivity and fairness. It makes everything thereafter you know, so easy. So he was the driving force behind having networks within the business uh, he and I had a, several conversations around what a network could be and what it might look like. And, and I can talk about my experience. Thereafter, I spent some time really thinking about what it means to be black in the workplace. Um, as a black man, I don't speak for all black people. And in fact, black is, is not a very specific term. It's a catch-all for many different subgroups and, and nations and countries. It can mean many different things to many different people. Um, so over a period of time, and, and this would be my advice for anybody, 
is really think about what you're doing and make sure you understand the challenges and opinions. And the only way you can do that is by reading and speaking to people. I think the movement we're going through right now following the tragic death of George Floyd um, is positive. It's, it's, it's great to see um, the country having a conversation with itself in regards to racial inequality. But one of the dangers is um, people's enthusiasm outpaces their um, ability to get it right. I kind of liken this phase to people have been in the dark, the curtains have been ripped open, and their eyes haven't adjusted to the light yet. And it's in that phase where you're disorientated, you can you know, knock over the alarm clock or stub your toe. But in this instance, stubbing your toe, you know, could mean people losing jobs or, or, you know, situations that cause damage individually and reputationally for a business. So it's really important, again, I stress the point, that people take the time to, um, to, to, to talk to people that really understand the situation. And in, in today's world, everyone expects quick answers. You know, I always joke that I'm from the video shop generation, not the Netflix generation. You know, I walk down the road, spend half an hour in the video shop, hope the video was actually there once you've chosen the box, and then you take it home, rewind it, then you would watch it. The Netflix generation, obviously, you've got it on your phone instantly. I don't think you can solve racial inequality with the Netflix mindset. I think it takes more time. And I've had some incredible conversations with people where, and these are people I've known for, you know, many years, and we've come out of a conversation recently um, enlightened by our newfound understanding. And, and in order to do that, you've got to have a conversation where people are allowed to say, and I sort of use inverted commas here, silly things. They're allowed to be honest and open. And as a listener, you allow them to talk. You don't judge them. You don't get defensive. And where you can have a dialogue like that it's, it's fascinating what comes out in the mix there afterwards. And that, for me, is the foundation to, to personal growth, which then creates the catalyst for people having the right mindset and making the, the, the changes we all hope to see. Um, and then the other point Patrick touched on, um, go back to your question more specifically, is mentorship. You know, again, talking in reference to um, the work Afrofoxans are doing, I think we have a, a, a lack of um, representation in terms of leadership within the business community. And there are some great black leaders out there, but they're not as visible as we'd like them to be. So mentorship for me is about formalizing that process of, of putting people who have more questions together with people that have more you know, answers than questions. And where a business can um, give its employees the time and the space to, to come together with these people and, and, and learn and grow, and it benefits the business. The, the business creates more leaders, which can only be a good thing. Other tactical uh, measures that businesses can take kind of when they're starting off, um, you know, basically starts with recruitment. Um, if you're using a search firm, make sure that you get a balanced slate of candidates um, de demand that it reflects uh, the environment that you're operating in um, and your customer base and make them work harder if you're not seeing that. If you're recruiting internally like we've done, uh, for example, uh, uh, a few years ago we changed our recruitment practices such that we couldn't have recruitment sessions unless there was a 50-50 composition of men and women coming into the recruitment session. We, it wouldn't be scheduled until it was 50-50 on the slate. Because um, if you don't get your recruitment right, then you're going to be forever perpetuating this problem and it's going to take forever uh, to change things. Um, as part of the recruitment process, when you evaluate people, uh, it needs to be on an objective basis. Uh, and we changed some of our practices with our new uh, chief people officer, Sarah Mason, who came into our business, where we moved away from sort of one-on-one, -on -one, slightly unstructured chats where we might test somebody and also ask about their hobbies and interests to something far more structured uh, in the form of an assessment center where we tested people 
um, who were working off of real life case studies to stimulate what it would be like working for Foxtons in the field and allowing people to leverage their life experience in those assessment centers to show if they would make a good agent or not, rather than speaking about hobbies which may or may not relate to the person who's interviewing them. So that's hugely important. Um, and things as basic as if you're interviewing different candidates, make sure you're asking all of them the same questions. Make sure you're scoring them against the same set of criteria and collecting those sheets and totaling up the scores and not doing it by gut instinct. So there's a whole host of things at the very beginning of the recruitment process um, that, that some companies will need to change. Also in the way they look at talent, are you recruiting from the same university or have you actually cast your net a bit wider to reflect um, your, your customer base? All of these points are really important from um, attracting talent. And then in terms of keeping them in your business, um, as Dom mentioned, mentorship and sponsorship programs are really key. I think the difference with sponsorship is that there's a little bit more interest from the senior management team in tracking individual candidates through the organization and making sure we don't lose them along the way. Uh, so I would encourage companies to have both sets of programs. Uh, and then for the workforce generally, uh, we all need to do, I, I think, at least once a year, some sort of unconscious bias training because we're, we're all human beings. We're all sort of pre-programmed to uh, think quickly, um, sometimes too quickly, um, with sort of using past experiences in our brain as a future sort of predictor of things. And often um, we get that wrong and we, we need to be deprogrammed once a year to remember um, that we, we can fall into decision traps and unconscious bias training is a really great way to do that as a business. It's not that your employees are racist or your senior management team is racist. Uh, it's, it's, it's about making sure that you maintain very objective thinking and that will only make your business stronger. That's all, all really, really good advice. And I've seen Sarah in action um, and, 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 and the way um, she set, set up your um, assessment criteria, I think is, is, is unique to the industry and very uh, powerful. I, I, if I can change the subject, um, because here we are June the 20th, I think, somewhere around there. And Dom, you referenced Black Lives Matter and the movement yeah. that's, that's come out of um, um, North America. And I actually, if you don't mind, I, I, I want to ask Patrick, as a North American, um, what must we, the you know, British real estate sector, learn from what's happened um, across the states in recent weeks? Well, firstly, I would say, listen, um, that's what we all need to be doing right now uh, and, and reading up uh, and educating ourselves on a whole host of things, um, race obviously being at the top of the list. Um, and anybody running a business anywhere in the world right now needs to be looking seriously at the composition of their workforce. And if the workforce doesn't mirror the, the city or the country that they're operating in or their customer base, then they have a major problem. And I don't think that they will be a viable business, at least a viable long-term business, if they're prepared to have that disconnect continue. Dom? Yeah, I think it's very difficult to answer this question without staring sort of the elephant in the room um, directly in the face. Um, and for a, for a specific answer, you know, for the property industry, which is actually applicable to any business, I think we need to have a very honest conversation about racial inequality 
and what racism actually means. And I think the average person tends to misunderstand it. They think it's being politically incorrect uh, or saying the wrong thing. And it can constitute that. But my understanding is racism is a power structure which is designed to devalue the life, the liberty and the economic potential of certain groups based on their skin colour. And in my experience, you tend to find that black people are at the bottom of that hierarchy. Now, the effect of that is it can affect policy all the way from the very top. You know, it could be government policy um, and then permeates its way all through institutions. So if we look at the, um, the black community and, and, and how it affects us um, in education, um, and these are some stats um, from UCAS themselves, they say that um, the, the, the application form for a black student is 21 times more likely to be interrogated for false or missing information than white students. Um, David Lammy, in fact, in 2017 said that Oxford colleges hadn't taken any black students in for six years and black people are more likely to be unemployed six months after graduating. In policing, you're nine times more likely to be stopped by the police and four times more likely to be arrested or tasered. Why is that relevant? Well, it's clearly more difficult getting a job if you're black. If you have a criminal record, it's nigh on impossible. In regards to, to job opportunities, um, the University of Oxford, the, the Nuffield College, there did a, um, an experiment which showed that um, if you identify as black or minority ethnic, then you have to work your CV 80% um, harder to get the same response as a white person. And what's really, um, you know, it's, it's clearly terrible to hear, but, but what fascinates me about that is it's become, you know, folklore amongst the black community. Our parents and grandparents would always say, you have to work twice as hard if you're black to get ahead. Well, they weren't wrong. That's quite literally what the data shows us. And then earlier this year, um, there's a, um, a report called the Parker Report, set up by Sir John Parker, um, supported by Ernest Young and Young and um, the government, I believe, um, um, it's, it's supported by Andrea Ledson, um, who's the um, Secretary for Business and Energy and Industry. And what that's shown is BAME people hold, them, hold less than 7% of director positions for the FTSE 350, 178 versus um, 2,625 potential opportunities. And they've actually recommended that um, FTSE 100 need to have at least one non-white person um, at board level by 2021. And for the FTSE 250, that they have it until at least um, 2024. So, you know, great, you've recognised the problem and you've put some KPIs in place. But the fact that the target's just having one, you know, shows you the extent um, of, of the challenge here. And the, the outgoing Director General of the Confederation of British Industry was quoted saying, the lack of black and ethnic minority representation is the, in the highest echelons of UK enterprise must change. So this isn't um, just black people complaining and, and you know, taking the position of victim, but it's actually just facts being relayed quite often by very senior people in, in positions of authority themselves. So what we can be certain of is if we do nothing, the situation will just exacerbate and, and get worse. So I believe there's an overcompensation which is needed and necessary in order to readdress the balance. And, and picking up on, on something Patrick said earlier um, in regards to uh, recruitment and, and uh, having the right representation in the room, you know, having a certain number of women, having a certain number of, 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 of black people or minority ethnic. It's, it's in, incredibly important, yes, for attracting talent, but it also goes back to this idea of um, diversifying the thinking in the room too. Um, I think we've got really good examples of this. In fact, two good examples. 
Um, the first one which comes to mind is, is if you look at the way um, the NHS have handled um, the Public Health England report on um, the effects of COVID-19 disproportionately affecting BAME people, it, it's not surprising when you recognise that of, of the 200 plus NHS trusts, only seven of them um, are run by BAME individuals. Or if you look at what Marcus Rashford has achieved only this week in regards to the U-turn from the government on free school meals, I very much doubt that there's a high proportion of people in the government who have free school meals as a child. It took someone with the diverse thinking of having that lived experience to introduce that thinking into the conversation for the government then to change their policy. The fact we've had to do a U-turn on it is what worries me, because if we didn't have a Marcus Rashford, 1.2 million children wouldn't eat for six weeks. So this is a necessity, it's not just a nice thing to do. For me, having diversity in, improves the quality of the thinking within institutions and ultimately makes those business businesses more capable and more robust. Um, so, Tom, you, I, I completely agree with you. This is going to take time. It's not a Netflix, press the button and everything is fixed yeah. scenario. So, um, the challenge, you know, I've spent 20 years studying people in real estate in London, yeah. mostly, obviously um, further afield nowadays, but it's predominantly a very white sector. Mm -hmm. And um, senior jobs tend to require very specific uh, elements of experience, typically. Yeah. And if um, that skill set um, or that experience set doesn't exist amongst uh, black property professionals, yeah. what do we do? Yeah, it's a very good point that the problem then perpetuates and, and continues. So the way that I understand it is um, if you look at companies or, or in fact look at the industry as a whole, it will, it will be a, a pyramid and you're more likely to find ethnic minorities or, or black people in this instance at the bottom of that pyramid. So it's really important that um, roles are advertised in the right places and companies are making um, a concerted effort to not just fish in the same part of the stream because if you continue to do that, surprise, surprise, you catch the same kind of fish. And this is where bias comes in because when people think of what an estate agent or, or a property professional will, looks like, then potentially they've got a very narrow idea of that. So it's about changing people's perceptions. I, I then think a concerted effort needs to be made to, um, to find these property professionals who are in senior positions and make them more visible. And people like me have a responsibility to throw the ladder down to the next generation and to tell our story because it's, it's motivational and inspiring to other people. And I say this humbly because for a very long time, um, you know, I had my head down and I was just you know, working very hard. Um, but actually, you look up one day and realise you've got more answers than you do questions. And there are people coming through that have more questions than they do answers. And where I talk about something which seems to be relatively mundane to me, it, it can be that bit of advice which is really profound for them. And I realise there's, there's great... Um, power and potential in, in sharing my stories and allowing people to learn from my mistakes and accelerate faster through that pyramid to get to where they need to be. So being a great role model for the, for the, the minority ethnic property professionals is, is a big part of the solution, as well as making sure that recruiters do their part in, in changing the perception as to what a property professional looks like. And I would also add, if, if, if it's a particular skill or specialty, um, then that company needs to actively get involved in, in sharing that skill set with young people. So one of the things that we do at Coxton's is we've partnered with uh, a not-for-profit making the leap that's focused on social mobility, uh, and we run, regularly run workshops uh, at our HQ here in Chiswick where we do leadership training and a bit of, frankly, sales training in terms of the soft skills 
that we would expect from a really good estate agent. Uh, and I think we, we basically had hundreds of students complete this program. And this is sort of our competitive advantage or secret sauce at Foxton's that gives us a, a market leading position in London is our people combined with really good technology and our, our branch reach and brand. Uh, but if you're, if you're in the property sector and you're more technical and you're a surveyor, for example, then you really need to be involved in creating a similar sort of program um, where if there's a lack of uh, expertise in that particular area, well, you need to bring it to schools to make sure that young people are studying that. Uh, and, then, and then you need to work with those young people uh, and for, for high performers, give them a chance, either through an apprenticeship program, um, work shadowing, I mean, or, or even simply having people come into the office uh, uh, for, you know, a, a month, a week for mentorship. I mean, one of the interesting things that struck me in the UK is, is this work experience, and I don't know if Dom has found this to be the case, but it, it, at times I think that this work experience can be the most elitist thing where um, kids from private schools leverage their parents to work with their network to place their child um, in a work shadowing program for a week for quote-unquote work, work experience, but they're not even working. They're just sort of following around some senior person in a very large corporate. And generally speaking, that demographic is the least in need of any sort of work experience. And if they want work experience, they should be doing something where they're earning minimum wage. And it totally needs to be overturned on its head. Um, and maybe Dom has a view here. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. A few different things come to mind. The first is quite often when we embark upon this exercise to readdress the balance of representations, we've already discussed, um, we can sometimes get drawn into this conversation around, well, that's positive discrimination and, yeah. and it's unfair. But actually, there's a few different vehicles people use to get ahead. Um, one is cronyism, where businesses can be an old boys club and it's just an extension of um, you know, the teams they used to be on or the schools they used to go to. The other vehicle is nepotism. So assuming that anything we do in the context of DNI is unfair is making an assumption that it's a level playing field anyway, which I don't believe it is. Um, the other point which comes to mind more specifically to, to what Patrick was saying is when you look at the, the cohort that tends to come in to Foxton's via the Making the Leap program, there's a high proportion of, of, of individuals who are um, from the lower socioeconomic band. They tend to be minority ethnic. Um, parents may um, not have English as a first language. And you tend to find in, in those scenarios, the individuals cannot afford to be doing a non-paid work placement. There are other pressures which dictate they need to be earning money so they miss the opportunity. They don't get the opportunity to do work placement because they don't know anybody and secondly even if they did it would put quite you know, a strain on their household financially so I agree with Patrick when, when he says that we need to sort of reinvent what, what some of these pathways into businesses look like because that is the, the, the structural inequality, inequality that we're talking about here this, this is what it looks like and that's the effect it has because the pathway becomes resistant for certain people and more fluid for others. And that's why you end up with the results you end up with further down the line, which then has the effect, in my opinion, of making businesses less dynamic and making the thinking within those businesses less dynamic. Can you, can you guys give us a, a real example of somebody that's come via that, uh, that, those channels or that pathway and that absolutely flown through the ranks here? And um, you know, what what was within that person's makeup that um, you know, 
made them rise so much faster. Yeah, I won't give a specific example, but I'll, I'll sort of summarise my thoughts generally. I don't think there is anything extra special about those individuals compared to anybody else. I just think they're given an opportunity to shine where normally they wouldn't be. And um, typically you find that where people have, have, have come from certain institutions um, and they come into the business environment, and I'm not just talking about boxers here, but generally, then they just know the unwritten rules, they know the etiquette, they know how to you know, operate within um, the environment. So they don't need to worry about that. They can just worry about the technical competency um, and, and getting yeah. along with people. So, so people that aren't okay with that environment have this extra consideration to sort of carry around all the time, which can really weigh them down and surprise, surprise, it then affects um, the retention risk, affects performance and certainly affects the retention rate. So some of the amazing work that Making the Leap do and, and some of the sessions that um, I'm personally involved in is, is giving people the skills to engage effectively when they walk through the door. They, well, in fact, we give them the skills to, to have effective interviews, um, but also when you get the job, you know, what skills do you need to make sure that you settle in and settle in quickly so then you can really focus on your performance? Because if they're not learning these skills from their teachers at school, and let's be honest, you know, not many people do, um, and your parents haven't had a position working in a corporate environment, then who does teach you those skills? So you are then naturally at a disadvantage, so something has to be done in order to um, readdress the balance there. Do you think it's easier for big businesses to be able to um, do these types of things, or, 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 or not? I mean, you know, the, the small business estate agent around the corner doesn't necessarily have um, HR departments, CSR programs, etc., etc. Or am I, is it a cop-out? I, I think that's a cop-out. I think one of my favourite sayings is business equals problems. Um, any business that's trying to avoid problems isn't working hard enough. I mean, if, you're, if you've got no problems, you're clearly not trying to grow. Because if you're growing, you create new problems for yourself. Yeah. So business for me is this perpetual puzzle that needs to be solved. And I think every business, regardless of its size, um, just needs to solve the puzzle as to how they can make that work for them and, and turn it into a competitive advantage. And it can all be based on sort of proportionality. If you're if you're running a small business where you've got three employees, well, maybe start with uh, some sort of work shattering where you actually recruit from an area within your community that is underrepresented in your business. And um, that, that might be bringing one person on, but one is still better than zero. And you have to start somewhere. And that's fine too. It, it's not just about the absolute level. It's about starting to do something because change only will begin at that point. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, it's June. It's we're in London. We're 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 in a COVID world, um, and it's Pride Month. Um, what's Patrick? You're an openly gay man. What what um, what can the property sector learn from Foxtons around yeah, um, your 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 ability to not only uh, sort of put LGBTQ at the forefront of of your of of your people agenda, but what what lessons I guess can the real estate sector learn from your develop you know your your active development in that arena over the last three or four years? Well, since investing um, in our our diversity networks um, and and launching our LGBTQ plus network. Um, I can now say that our LGBTQ plus employees are actually more engaged in a st statistically significant way than our non-LGBT employees in this business. So um, if you get it right with um, a minority group, you can actually have an extremely productive and engaged team of people um, who are highly energized 
um, and, and, and bringing you more business. But you know, what I would say in terms of what we're doing, which I would love other businesses to commit to doing as well, is taking uh, a more active stance uh, in recruiting LGBT employees. So for example, Foxton's um, has been a sponsor of Pride in London, uh, but unlike a lot of other businesses, we don't just march in the parade or slap our logo on a float. One of the things that we think is really important is to have a local presence at Pride in London. Uh, and we do that through a recruitment stall where we, we uh, on the day, um, have a bunch of our employees. Many of them are actually allies, so they might not, not even be gay necessarily, but they're out and about speaking to people who are coming to Pride in London um, about a career in real estate and what Foxton's is all about. Um, and I think if more, uh, if more companies did that sort of thing, um, it would start to move the needle on this front. Um, obviously, this year, the Pride in London parade has, has been postponed due to COVID-19. Um, and I think this year, Pride is all about actually thinking in a bigger picture around why diversity and inclusion matters and how we join forces with other minority groups in the UK. And that's exactly why Dom and I are talking about this today, because interestingly, June means a lot of things. It's an extremely symbolic month in history. So you have on the 28th of June, um, the anniversary of the Stonewall, Stonewall protests in New York City uh, in 1969, uh, which is basically led by both black and trans women sex workers fighting off white policemen um, uh, and pushing for uh, equality. Um, and on this particular day, um, and Dom brought this uh, to my attention yesterday, the 19th of June is really important because this was the day that uh, slavery was officially abolished in Texas um, post-Civil War. But it took about two years since Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation for the memo to get to Texas. And they finally uh, uh, abolished slavery uh, two years later. Um, and we're now um, at the beginning of a Trump rally kickoff, and maybe uh, Don wants to go into the little bit of a history lesson on what happened in Tulsa, Tulsa Oklahoma. Yeah, it's um, I mean the conversation that Patrick and I had yesterday was around the timing of the Trump rally, um, which was meant to happen today um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Tulsa, Oklahoma was a town where um, the free black slaves and the descendants of free black slaves had created a community, an economy for themselves, um, which was functioning um, and lucrative. And it was burned down and, um, and, and, and many people were killed. And the conversation we were having is for, for Trump to set his rally day to happen on Juneteenth in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is a very clear signal that he doesn't respect, um, in my opinion, black people. Um, and I think that's a long, um, that, that's a, a, an additional point and a long list of, of, um, of, of um, insults, really, to, to um, minorities you know, across the world or, or people who don't identify um, with, with what he regards as being normal or being part of the American story. So, you know, for me, it, it, it's going back to Patrick's point, going back towards the question, there is a read across here between uh, the work that I'm trying to do and the work that, that Patrick is, 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 is doing, because you have certain groups who, who naturally don't feel as though they're part of the common narrative, part of the, the, the main story within this country. And they 
come into an organization, there's a, um, a concern or even a paranoia that maybe they don't belong. Maybe this is not for them. Maybe they won't be accepted. Um, one of the points I found really profound having attended an LGBTQ plus event is, and, and I hadn't thought about this in advance. So, so again, this is another you know, really good example why people need to step outside of their, their, their comfort zone and, 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 and attend events and speak to people. But when you're, um, you identify as LGBTQ, you have to come out not just once, but every time you meet somebody. You know, I didn't need to come out as black. You can <laughs> see it. <laughs> you know it soon. So there's, there's, there are different challenges there for people. But the, the overarching point is, do I belong? Will people accept me? When a company then um, sets up a network um, or sets up a number of initiatives um, to support people who I like you or look like you or, or do what you do, then for me, that's an endorsement that they you know, validate you, you are accepted, you are part of, of the mainstream. That's, that's profound, that's really important. And it's really difficult for people to understand that if you've always been part of the default. Yeah. You know, that for me is the crux really of what we're really trying to connect with here. Um, as a country now, I think we, it's quite a profound time, isn't it? You know, go back to this, this um, analogy of the curtains being ripped open. It's, it's, it's um, not feeling sorry for people, but it's needing to empathise with other people's positions to really be in, in a position to um, support and engage in the most positive and proactive way. Patrick, do you, you know, I've, I've spent my entire career um, talking to hiring managers or HR functions within the property sector. That's, 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 that's my day to day. Um, you know, organisations don't typically ask people their sexual orientation. Do you think they should? No, I don't think they should ask um, uh, people their sexual orientation. Um, but I think you can have questions around. Um, tell me, in a, give me a time in your life when you were involved in um, leading a diversity and inclusion initiative which is a question that would be relevant to all people. And I don't think it would be a bad question to ask um, because that would encompass people who may either be in a minority group or could also um, be re very relevant for people who are allies who are equally as important uh, in terms of recruiting for uh, a really inclusive workplace. Um, I want to move the conversation forward slightly. I'm conscious you guys are um, very successful, busy gentlemen, and, and to get you both in the same room at the same time is is uh, a, a real privilege. But so, socially distanced. <laughs> yes, you've never seen you've never seen such a a, a well organised podcast. Oh, I haven't. Um, so, um, all credit to Laura for that, um, guys. You are so far ahead of you, the organisation is, is so far ahead of the majority, in my view, on on these. Subject. So, what's left for you to do? What's next? Clearly, gender. I, I think we we've spoke a lot today about race and sexual orientation, largely because we're in the month of Pride, and you've got the Black Lives Matter movement happening front and center all around the world right now. Uh, but gender is still, unfortunately, um, the the sort of final frontier here, where. Uh, like most businesses, we have a very good gender representation um, uh, starting off, you know, at, at, at the sort of the bottom of the pyramid, but that 50-50 um, doesn't carry through to the top of the pyramid. So like, like many businesses, um, we still have work to do. Um, and if you're willing to have us back, we'd, we'd be more than happy to um, have somebody come who, who leads our Women at Foxton's network and give you some insights about what we're doing to tackle that. Yeah, I, I think um, we're not nearly started. You know, thank you for the compliment that we're doing more than most. Um, but I think we're only just warming up now, both sort of individually, collectively within Foxton's, but also as a country. Um, if anything, I think all the work we're trying to achieve has only just got people's attention. Um, 
inequalities on the agenda. We've got intention now. I think the next phase is, is what do we do with that attention and what meaningful, lasting, systemic change can be implemented to ensure that we have sustainable um, change and, and gains further down the line. So there's, there's an incredible amount of work to do. Um, and then to answer the question more specifically, you know, yes, um, as far as Afrofoxes is concerned, you know, one of my strategic objectives is to have more black leaders within the organisation. You know, I think there's there's a read across there in regards to some of the, the KPIs for women in the workplace and the LGBTQ plus network. And then one of the points I mentioned earlier um, is around visibility. Um, we went into a school, for instance, earlier this year, uh, the Afrofoxes, um, or 16 members of the Afrofoxes network, and we spent the day um, giving skills training to about 200 um, year 11 pupils. And it just highlighted to me um, how much work there is to be done because there's so many talented people out there, but again, they're lacking the role models and they were lacking someone who looks like me wearing a suit who's achieved what I've achieved thus far, telling them, you're just like me and I think you can make it. You know, those words alone, you know, would, would, would really, um, as simple as it was for me to say, it was really profound for them to hear because no one else was telling them that. I think that's hugely powerful. And, um, and um, I, yeah, I'm lost for words, to be honest with you, other than what I would like to say is that we, Devil Smith, are, you know, not necessarily, we don't necessarily have the answers, but we're absolutely committed to supporting you on 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 this journey and, and 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 obviously the sector at large so you know it's been it's been really really um moving for me to sit here and, and and listen to you guys this morning and and i and i appreciate you firstly for your time secondly for being so open and 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 um just just open and and, and honest with us and and the sector can learn a lot from from this session so um i really appreciate it now you may or may not have been told before we wrap up, and I know you, you've got you've got houses to sell and mortgages to you know, to book. But um, before I let you shoot off, we, we always do a bit of a quick fire round. If you're up for playing the game, you don't have sure. to. Sure, yeah, just do. why not? Okay, so one word answers basically. Nothing, nothing, nothing too, uh, nothing too heavy. But um, uh, ketchup or mayo? Ketchup. Mayo. Pint or prosecco? Prosecco. <laughs> Peaky Blinders or Gangs of London? Peaky. I, I don't think I can understand either of them without subtitles. <laughs> Bowie or the Beatles? Bowie. Bowie. Finally. <laughs> um, it's diversity. Okay. <laughs> if you were a superhero, what would your superpower be? Listening better. <laughs> uh, tele tele uh, telepathic uh, skills. Yeah, very good. And uh, this question I ask everybody who's kind enough to sit down with me over a, a podcast: If you could own any building in the world, what building would it be, and what would you do with it? For me, it would be the Houses of Parliament. I think that um, from what I've heard anecdotally. Um, it's not a building set up for communication. It's full of dark corridors and dark corners. And we complain about this two-party system we have, but yet the main room is set up for two sides to oppose each other. So I wouldn't knock it down. I think it would be a wonderful museum, generate some revenue, maybe for the NHS or something. Um, and instead, we need a new building which better reflects um, you know, the dynamic conversations we're having now. That's a great answer. And for me, I live in Soho. I love the neighborhood, but it's changing very quickly. Uh, and um, I think we need to also probably keep track of its its history. So maybe a museum in Soho in the in the Brewer Street car park seems deeply underutilized at the moment and could probably be um, part of that museum and a mixed-use scheme if somebody listening wants to do that project. <laughs> well, 
You never know. And we'll put we'll point them in your direction, Patrick. Um, gentlemen, I really, really want to thank you sincerely for your time. Um, uh, I think these conversations are really important, and um, and long may they continue. So thank you very much Great, indeed. Thank you for having us. Um, right, better sell some houses. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You can join the DS movement by visiting ds.devilsmith.com and you will receive the latest Deadcast episode direct to your inbox.